1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing for March 25th. I'm Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. I'm going to be joined very shortly by Michael Howell of Cross-Border Capital Live from Oxford in the UK, who has got a really interesting angle on markets. First, I want to go over in sort of speed round fashion what has gone on this week to get everyone caught up to date. FIRST, YIELDS ARE FLYING. U.S. TWO-YEAR YIELDS RAN FROM 194 LAST WEEK TO CLOSE AROUND 2.3% THIS WEEK. FED BALANCE SHEET TICKED UP THIS WEEK break-even five-year closes at 3.7 percent a new high for the move super inflationary alongside this commodity Bonanza we were seeing um, Bloomberg commodity index up five percent this week sidebar with a strong dollar once again oil up eight and a half percent to 113 natural gas up 15 percent to 555 aluminum up 7% vaulting off moving average support gold up a couple of percent to 1950 grains up a couple of percent working their way towards the high the S&P up 2% driven by a two and a half retracement bounce in fang stocks toward their resistance levels the heart of the great rotation. We had the VIX fall to a low for the move at twenty-one. The oil and gas, ENP, industrial metals all rallied over six percent. Home builders fell eight percent behind 10% slides in lows in Home Depot. Tech was in the middle, very, very mixed. Now let's get to a little bit more deeper analysis with my man, Michael Howell. Michael, talk to me today. How you doing? All right. You're pretty good, Tony. Thanks. Good, good. I watched your interview um, with Slash Bennington, my man, and I was really, really um, excited and, and drawn into how you look at the markets or are totally driven by liquidity. Do you want to talk a little bit about you know, how cross-border looks at the world first, and then we'll go over a couple specific questions about the markets?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, for us, the key thing is liquidity. We track liquidity across, uh, what is it now, about 90 central banks or economies worldwide, the whole methodology actually began uh, many years ago, I mean, probably uh, 30 years ago or more, when I used to work for Salomon Brothers, the uh, US investment bank. Uh, their tracking money flow was, was critical for understanding the fixed income and forex markets. And we just extended it globally, and we basically make uh, assessments of stock markets as well as uh, uh, fixed income and forex markets. It's as straightforward as that. Money matters, money drives
1: markets got it so you're talking about the effects of collateral margin leverage how how everything is affected by liquidity and that's what's driving the markets right yeah absolutely spot on brilliant brilliant well let's let's open up with a, a discussion that's topical about what's going on in real vision and what's going on in the world today us 10-year yields um, bounced to as high as 2.47 percent today they're about to threaten the downtrend In Raul Powell's chart of truth, which, as you know, it probably is that four-decade downtrend and downward channel in 10-year yields. Michael, do you think that we are going to break through to the upside this time, or is this just another um, Treasury sell-off to fade and we should be accumulating them here on the dip?
2: I think if you look at the fixed income markets generally, they're, they're following a script. And that script is basically a very standard script. And there's a chart I think uh, I, I've got, which you can take a look at, which is looking at the U.S. Treasury market. And the U.S. Treasury market, if you split it into, uh, into two components, um, first of all, if you look at a measure of the slope of the term structure, which is basically looking at the five, 10-year spread, uh, that spread has absolutely collapsed in the last nine months. On top of that, what you've got is the convexity of the curve, which is a measure, if you like, of the slope of the front end, the bulge in the curve, you know, how much uh, investors are discounting the Fed raising rates, has shot up. So you've got like uh, the blades of, of a pair of scissors which have crossed. And in fixed income speak, that cross is what you might call a death cross for the credit markets. And why is it a death cross? Because basically two things are going on which are very bad. The first thing is the cost of refinancing for a corporate, uh, which tend to refinance around the three to five year tenor, three to five year area, has gone up enormously. That cost is rising fast. The second thing is that the flattening of the back end of the term structure is a bit of a wonkish concept, but you know, hang in there with me. What that's showing is that term premium are, are basically shrinking fast, and that's saying that the appetite among in- institutional investors for safe U.S. government treasury bonds is escalating. It's skyrocketing. They don't want to take risk. They're basically shuffling down the risk curve to the safety of treasuries. The combination of those two things, a higher cost of refinancing for corporates and less appetite for risky debt is basically telling you there's an upcoming credit problem. And that's what you've got to start looking at within the fixed income markets. What have you seen in the fixed income markets in the last nine months? You've seen everything you'd expect to see. Number one, you've seen convexity rise. In other words, investors are discounting an aggressive Fed. Number two, the appetite for risky debt has collapsed. So in other words, the yield curve has flattened. Number three, volatility in the fixed income markets has jumped, hence the move index spiking. And number four, you're beginning to see spreads in the corporate credit markets widening. Bang, bang, bang. Those are four things that the stock
1: market's got to start worrying about. Very interesting and so well encapsulated. Um, You know, We've seen the high yield ETF, HYG curl over. The spreads are widening. Do you think that could be a center of concern right there, Michael? I, I think it is,
2: yeah. I think there are upcoming credit problems because I think once rates start to go up, you've got a refinancing issue in the markets. One of the things that many investors and many academics for sure don't seem to take into account is that the modern financial system is not a new financing system. It's a refinancing system. What we've got to do is we've got to fund or refinance or roll over this whopping pile of debt in the world economy. What is it now? $300 trillion of debt. Okay. If you've got a five-year average life of that debt, that's $60 trillion of debt to be refinanced every year. You need balance sheet capacity to do that. And balance sheet capacity means liquidity. So risk in the system is largely controlled by the Federal Reserve. So if you take a look, for example, at the S&P 500, the movements in that, and uh, look at the Federal Reserve's uh, liquidity injections, uh, as you can see from the chart, there is almost a one-for-one movement. Now, I noted you said earlier on, very accurately, that the Federal Reserve balance sheet has increased this week. It's, that's true. It has. But the net liquidity injection by the Fed has actually fallen. And that's the key point. What the chart shows is the effective amount of liquidity that is going into the market. And look at that almost one-for-one movement between the two series. Now, the question we're going to ask is, what happens as the Fed starts to pull more liquidity away from the system? And the Federal Reserve has actually said, they fessed up to the idea, that they're going to start shrinking the balance sheet as well uh, sometime later this year. That's bad news for the markets. You cannot have a situation where liquidity is being pulled away in an environment where there's whopping, great, uh, whopping amounts of debt to refinance.
1: Okay, so we're we're facing a situation at some point down the road soon where the Fed is likely to pull liquidity away. Right after we just had the S and P navigate a bit of a crisis heading into the March 16th FOMC meeting, Um, it fell 13% from its peak and has since bounced about 10%. So the damage hasn't been terrible, but the rotation out of technology stocks knocked the Nasdaq into bear market territory briefly. And then, in my opinion, it was saved by a sort of dovishly postured FOMC meeting. In your opinion, from where we are from that point in the um, stock market trajectory, Michael, with this liquidity tightening coming, um, it's, I don't want to lead the witness. Tell me what you think of the S&P.
2: I think this is just uh, a bear market bounce. I would, I would expect the market uh, basically has a uh, 15 20% fall from here. Uh, then the authorities are going to have to come back in to start pumping back liquidity. Effectively, what you're seeing uh, increasingly in the world economy is that financial markets are driving the real economy, not vice versa, as the textbooks tell us. The financial markets are very important, and you can't let them uh, spin out of control. And that ultimately we think is likely to happen because of all these parameters like shrinking balance sheet, rising rates, increasing credit problems, etc., uh, now you know when I first started in the markets, uh, you know over 30 years ago, the one data point that everyone used to fix on, particularly in the fixed income markets, was unusually housing starts. Okay, nobody really pays a lot of attention to that, but that was the absolute key focus. Uh, you know people would scramble to look at the housing, the U.S. housing number. What's happened today? You got another month of down, uh, four months down. Great lead indicator. It's telling us a lot about what's happening in the real economy. Take a look at the University of Michigan survey, which I think the you know the the, the uh, final numbers came out for March today. Again, what you're seeing is weakness being projected uh, for for the U.S. economy in the future over the next three to six months. Uh, that survey is is not is not bullish. Uh, a lot of other evidence is really compounding on that. So I think the backdrop doesn't look great. Now, if you take a look at the long-term U.S. liquidity cycle, what you'll see is that a kind of ominous cyclical shape, which is indicating that uh, that cycle, which is shown, uh, you know, if your viewers can see it with a black line, we've just kind of uh, embroidered that with a sine wave to show things are pretty regular in truth. What that's showing is that liquidity is likely to be dipping with some sort of flaw around, you know, let's say mid-2023. Has the COVID crisis changed that cycle? Well, it's changed it a tad. But not very much it may be pushed it out 12 months it's maybe increased the amplitude but the whole cyclical form is still pretty much there and that downswing is telling us you're going to get further yield curve flattening probably an inversion and that will lead on to credit problems and it will lead on to a much weaker real economy so that's the headwind that the equity markets are basically facing uh, now you have got another one which you to throw in. I mean, I don't want to be the, you know, the source of bad news here, but one's got to be realistic. Let's face the facts. What about the oil markets? Now, you know, some experts are talking uh, oil up to $200 a barrel. Now, what I what I can show you is and Ill- illustrate the fact that if you look at global liquidity, which is a data series which is, you know, taking that U.S. number and adding all the other big central banks and liquidity sources worldwide, so including China, uh, Europe, uh, et cetera, to the US, and you look at that against oil prices inverted, which is shown as the blue line on the chart uh, as a rate of change, what it shows you is that this kind of spike that we're seeing now in oil markets is going to be sucking liquidity out of the system. Now why is that? Well, I think you can come up with a number of reasons. Two of those, just by you know, by way of throwing it in to the argument, one is that it costs you a lot more to pay for oil now, so that money has got to come from financial markets into the real economy to basically feed transactions. If it comes out of financial markets, it's not buying stocks. The other factor is that oil and commodities are a source of collateral in the lending, in the credit markets. Now, if you get heightened volatility in these markets, as you know, uh, you're going to get margin requirements increasing, and therefore credit will start to shut it down. So another reason why financial liquidity comes down, and we just kind of projected what could happen based on past experience for that spike in oil prices. Bear in mind, we saw it before in uh, 2008. What foreshadowed the uh, stock market crisis in 2008 was actually a big spike in oil then um, to uh, levels of, just a little bit above where we're seeing now. I think, what was it? $147 a barrel.
1: Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l i b s y n ads.com
1: exactly well that's, that was a really um interesting read through because you know my you know being a little bit of Deadville's advocate just to have the conversation about a prolonged stock market sell off you know i can see bright signs in the markets Now, they are bright signs by commodity sectors that are obviously set up to have great years, but they're super small weightings in the S&P. So I could see how um, it could net-net be a negative drag on the performance of the S&P. But I still see a lot of money coming into the commodity space, and it was interesting to see you highlight how exactly higher energy prices could actually translate into less liquidity. So that's something I haven't thought about. So I I have to think about that um a lot broader my my question is as we you know th- this is the concern that i always have you know with with the russia ukraine crisis going on now you know we're sanctioning um entire nations we are uh blatantly obfuscating um you know goods and things like that around the world is the global funding system going to make it through this, Michael, without a major hiccup? Or do you think that there could be a bond dislocation lower or, or some kind of a real tremor that the markets will have to deal with?
2: I reckon there won't be a major a major problem, but I think there could still be a hiccup. Okay, uh, And the reason being is that if you look at the parallels, go back to Lehman in 2008, that was a forced impairment, but it was at the core of the system. What you've got now with uh, russia is a forced impairment in the credit markets but it's in the periphery of the system right. so it will cause a problem i mean there's uh, you know there are there are problems out there uh you know what is warren buffett's one of his favorite sayings is you know when the tide goes out you see he's swimming swimming naked right, right. Uh, and that's got to happen again when we start when this thing starts to unravel now uh it may take a month to six weeks for this thing to entirely unravel, but We'll see who is exposed. It may not be a problem, but I would suspect that given uh, you know the alacrity with which credit's been turned off to uh, to the Russians, uh, there will be problems somewhere in the commodity markets or somewhere out there in the credit markets. And that, that's an issue we've got to face. so that that is a problem. In the longer term, uh, the funding markets are pretty fragile, and they're pretty fragile because the way the system has unfolded, particularly since two thousand and eight, is the Federal Reserve is sort of sitting behind the global financial system increasingly. And that system is being fed with liquidity. And if the Federal Reserve is turning that tap off progressively, as we've seen, because of the inflation bogey in the US, which we know is a serious one, uh, then you've got to raise questions about the integrity of the funding system. There there may well be problems. Uh, And that's our concern. Now, you can kind of throw back at me, well what about china isn't that going to come to the rescue that is the new cavalry they charge in and bail the world out as they did in 2008 9 uh, i'm not so sure uh, you know china is clearly critical in this whole equation and if you look at the uh, relationship between china and the world business cycle uh, you'll see a chart which can uh, demonstrate uh, how important china is and what we basically show in in the chart that your viewers can see is uh, is the Chinese credit cycle, which we've extrapolated going forward from their current moves, and the world business cycle, which is kind of the world PMI index, a little bit like the US uh, ISM survey, but this is for the world. And, you know, what it shows is a remarkably close correlation. And I think the heads up to kind of interpret this is to say, look, the Federal Reserve is critical for financial markets, but China is critical for the real economy, the world business cycle. Uh, one controls business, you know, money in the real economy, and the Fed controls money in the financial economy. And this is the real economy outlook. So you know, while commodity markets are up and running now because of supply constraints, there may well be a second-round impact coming later from uh, demand if China keeps the current course. And I think the big question we've got to ask is, to try and understand China, is what is China up to? What is it doing? Now, the interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on geopolitics, but if you look at China, there's some fascinating data which is around, which basically shows, endorses this idea that China is also shunning off the money tab, um, which is shown in a bar chart that uh, we can put up, which basically shows China's PBOC, the People's Bank of China, and its money market operations. And it shows here what's happened over the last few weeks. Now, Uh, I've highlighted there the day of the Ukraine invasion. Now, you can look at this chart and you can read it many ways. And I'm not a geopolitical expert, but it's kind of interesting to kind of ponder this one and see what actually happened. Uh, The Ukraine invasion is marked there on 24th February. And you can see the liquidity injections that the PBOC made. Now, were they prepared for that? Don't know. Debate? Interesting question but they certainly stuffed Chinese markets full of liquidity. In that period of five days, one trillion renminbi or yuan was injected into the markets. What's that? 160 billion US dollars. And then, against a sort of the negative wave of criticism about will China support Russia, et cetera, in the following five to six days, it was all taken out again. Now, maybe China's markets didn't need any support, but they certainly didn't get any more liquidity. And you can see what's happened since, just sort of flutterings of small amounts of liquidity. Is China easing? No way does the evidence tell you that. A lot of people keep saying, oh, China's easing, China's easing. This is hope over experience, over reality. There's no evidence they're doing it yet.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Now, do you think that... I want to hear your thoughts on inflation, and I'm wondering if prolonged inflation will, you know, potentially change your view on China tightening and and even on the the trajectory of U.S. tightening. But I see, you know, a setup for a prolonged bull market in commodities, largely based on you know we see we're seeing a lot of prices, especially in base metals, flying away to all time highs. If you drill down into their inventories, they are falling to all-time lows. You know we've got extremely low inventories versus five season, five-year averages across the energy complex, from crude to gasoline to um, unleaded. And uh, you know I, I see a sustained energy rally. That's to me going to be the inflation guide. Um, I'm right. wondering how you're looking at inflation and how you're positioning yourself and your clients for cross-border versus the commodities sector of inflation, if that's fair to ask. Very fair to ask. Very good question. I think the thing you've got to
2: start to to differentiate is maybe a monetary inflation from a cost or, or real economy inflation. And the best way, the best steer on that is to look at what's happening to the price of gold, or probably more accurate these days – the price of gold and crypto sort of molded together, uh, some sort of hybrid of, tho- of those two assets. Mm. If you get a monetary inflation, you're going to get an increase in the gold price and in the crypto price. And I think that's our experience very clearly in the last five years uh, when you know, the crypto markets have, uh, have basically been growing fast. A real inflation is looking at non-gold commodity prices like oil or copper. Uh, relative to the gold price. And it's that second dimension, which I think is the more interesting one, because Mm -hmm. you're going to start to see real or metal, metals, foods, uh, you know, agricultural commodities generally rising against gold and crypto. And I think that's the interesting dimension. So I go with you on on that element, being enthusiastic there. But I would say at the moment with the Federal Reserve tightening, I'm not so sure we're going to get the monetary inflation right now. We will in time. There's no question. Because the Federal Reserve tightens until something breaks. And it's going to break. And then they'll come back again. So you've got a position uh, for these assets, the monetary assets in the longer term. But I think for now, looking at some real inflation is a very good thing to do. Now, on the question of is inflation transitory or not, I would say that, first of all, it was a great mistake for the Federal Reserve to label inflation transitory, because for certainly for the fixed income markets, what does it mean if the central bank says it's transitory? It tells you they're not going to tighten or they don't want to tighten, right? And that's been the story. So they should have dropped that, uh, that label pretty quickly, which I guess they did. What we're seeing is an inflationary surge. That inflationary surge is going to last probably well into 2023. If you look at the uh, Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey, Well, they look at the look at the inflation question there. Uh, Participants are projecting 5.4% average inflation, if I recall, for next year. Okay, that's a big number. Yeah. So you know the Fed's got to get to grips with this pretty fast, and that's why I think the Fed is going to have to start raising rates at some stage uh, more aggressively.
1: Okay. That's what I wanted to pin you down on, not to interrupt you, Michael, but I wanted to hear what you thought about their plan and how you think it actually turns out, right? I mean, they're scheduling basically a 25 basis point rate hike for each meeting through the rest of the year. It sounds very convenient, but to me it sounds like they're still way behind the curve, and and the commodity market's reaction to their 25 basis point hike at the last meeting kind of speaks to me that way. Can you tell me what your thoughts on the Fed's plans are for now and how you think this could turn out
2: yeah i think the i think the fed should in terms of forward guidance should be telling us that they're going to be a lot more aggressive now the reality is though that the real economy won't be able to take an aggressive fed because i think that the real economy uh depends to a great extent on financial markets and as i've tried to say the financial markets are fragile in the face of fed tightening simply because balance sheet and liquidity is so important to the equation so I would say that, in other words, put it another way, the fixed income markets will do the tightening for the Fed, and I would doubt whether you're going to see yields much above two and a half percent. Now I may be wrong, um, but you know this is a limit that we've, or a, a ceiling that we've penciled in for many months to say that what you're likely to see is ten-year yields testing two and a half, but they probably won't get through that, and then you'll start to see the next low or the next uh, stationary point about one and a half percent so I think you're looking at a fixed income markets to trading in that band and all the indications that we look at as I said right at the beginning of the program look at the sequence of how the fixed income markets have moved from that you can take a cue now the other point to think about is in the last 50 years the Fed funds rate has never traded through the five-year note yield right in 50 years Five-year note yield is what, circa two and a quarter, two point three percent, there or thereabouts. So that's your kind of limit on where Fed funds will go. Uh, that's another point. Another thing is, that remember from my Salomon Brothers days, you know one of the great adages, sayings in the fixed income markets is six or fifty. There's never been a six-month period where the yield on the long bond has not changed by more than, uh, by sorry, by at least fifty basis points. Now, that's obviously up and down. We've had a sharp rally in the long bond yield over the last six months. Could we be getting, setting ourselves up for a fall in yields over the coming six months? And that's the thing to raise. Now, that rule is not infallible, but it works actually a lot more of the time than you'd think.
1: It's a great rule to think of absolutely brilliant rule to keep in mind for sure, and and that was a great uh, rundown, which kind of keeps me in check in terms of being a Treasury bear, um, you know, to reflect my commodity bullishness. That That's uh, a view of mine that sometimes gets out of whack, and I need to speak to people like you that can sort of reel me back towards the center and understand that there are going to be some weak spots in the economy that are going to really be the cause for the Fed not being able to raise rates from here. Um I think we covered pretty much everything that uh we set out to cover as we get started michael do you mind if i take a couple of questions from our audience to finish off or do you want to go, have, you no, go for it let's it. go for the question let me just add one question though yeah is that if you believe in a, or a point if you believe
2: there's a recession coming people are going to favor fixed income how many institutions across the states or even worldwide are overweight fixed income at the moment
1: absolutely oh. nobody no, well, Oh, well let's let's see. See. Okay, so you think none of them are overweight after the last move, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. All right, let's go, let's get a couple of questions from the audience. I'm gonna start with, um, I'm gonna start with, uh, Wait a minute. Where is it? Sorry. Um, Edward Sanders asking a question that, uh, you know, a comment towards you seeing a potential 15 to 20% drop in the, in the stock market from here. He's got an interesting question. If that's, the, if that's the case, where is oil trading?
2: Well, I think that you've, you've got to look at these great, great question. Edward. yeah, I think you've got to look at this two ways. I mean, one is the demand side and the supply side. I think you've got a problem with supply. I'm not a supply-side oil expert, but everything I read tells me that supply is not as elastic as many people would suggest. While we've got good demand for oil, uh, the price could elevate more. And you know, some people are projecting 200 bucks a, a barrel for sure. I can't uh, I can't uh, comment on that particularly. But clearly, at the moment, there's upside. I think if you start to get the economy slowing which I think is a natural corollary of the stock market coming off, then you're going to be seeing demand coming away and the old price will be under downward pressure. Now, all I'd say is that if you start to look at, let's not look so much at Wall Street, uh, let's take a look at international markets and look at where the peak was in, say, the MSCI World Index or even strip the US out of the MSCI and look at the, what we used to be called the EFA Index, uh, you know, X effectively world XUS. us that's peaked more visibly several weeks ago. That's coming off. US housing starts have peak. That's coming off. These are great lead indicators to say the economy is, is softening. And that's got to be telling us there's, there's going to be some weakness coming through in the oil markets at some stage.
1: That is a great comment to the ebb and flow of the economy. If I could add one thing to that before going to the next question, I would add that we have not had such an attack on supply like we've had um, with this administration. And as long as that continues, I'm not sure it matters what happens to the stock market. It makes me bullish oil. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads dot com.
1: But um let me see another question. Um Evan from, from Real Vision Site would love to know your thoughts on Bitcoin. I think long-term,
2: there's no question. It's, uh, I, I'm bullish. I'm very upbeat about crypto. Um, it's, it's the future. Um, is it going to go up in a straight line? No. Uh, like any new asset class, it'll be volatile. Uh, it's demonstrated that recently. But Bitcoin is a monetary phenomenon. If you believe that the Federal Reserve balance sheet's going to grow in the medium term, which I think it must do, you know, looking at all the factors that are coming in, uh, then you've got to say that Bitcoin is going to be up from here. Now, why should it, why should the Federal Reserve balance sheet grow? Well, let me pose another question. Is debt or the debt-GDP ratio, overall debt, not just talking about federal debt, is the debt-GDP ratio of the US or the world economy going to be up or down from here in 10 years' time? I figure it's going to be up, right? Uh, I think debt to GDP is rising in a lot of places. I don't think the world economy... Uh, you know, I, I think well, the world economy can cope with that. It's coped with higher debt to GDP ratios before, and it's the course of least resistance for a lot of people, for a lot of politicians. And therefore, if the, balance, if the amount of debt is growing, the balance sheet of the financial system's got to grow to refinance and fund that debt, because debt has a maturity that needs rolling over. You've got to roll your debt. The Federal Reserve is integral in that equation, therefore the Fed balance sheet's got to expand. Hence, conclusion. Monetary inflation is with us in the medium term, and therefore Bitcoin and gold, but let's say Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, you know, uh, XT, uh, XTC or whatever the, the, ripple, uh, uh, the ripple currency is, all these things are going to start to move uh, upwards. XRP, I should have said. XRP are going to move upwards. These are, these are the future, no question. And I think you know, I was anecdotally talking to a, a finance director I know in the, uh, in the Middle East earlier on, American finance director of a big corporation, And he said the whole attitude towards crypto and digital payments uh, in the Middle East has changed almost overnight since the Russians invaded Ukraine. They're
1: starting to take this very, very seriously very interesting what a great great explanation of a bull case of crypto michael thank you very much um i want to I keep hitting the questions michael so i'm going to ask you to switch gears topically a little bit um we're going to go into the back into the energy market because this this question just came up uh, we're going to need more liquid natural gas ports to send to europe um, do you see that as something happening or something else that the administration might decide to slow down in the fossil fuel world
2: Well, the point about gas, which is a critical thing, is that uh, Europe is hooked, has been hooked, as you know, on Russian gas. Uh, That was geopolitically a very, very, very bad decision to make. Uh, And that needs to be substituted. As far as I can see, there are two long-term substitutes. One is US LPG, but that's expensive. Uh, The port facilities are not really there. And the administration in the US has got to up its game to enable, facilitate that export. I believe Biden is in Europe right now uh, negotiating those deals uh, for an offtake of US LPG. That's going to happen. The other source has got to be the Middle East, particularly countries like Qatar, to feed their gas in. So that's the other thing. But this is not an easy solution for sure. Now, it's also going to mean that if you look at this, gas is a key transition fuel uh, as you get into green energy. And Europe is absolutely hooked as well on the whole idea of green energy.
1: So this is here for the for the for the long term couldn't agree more. They continue to signal that it's going to be with us for the long term. I've got a question that's right up your alley and one that I was actually going to finish with if we didn't hear it from someone. Gregory from Real Vision uh, does ask the question, though, about the reverse repo facility. Can you explain to us your view on how there are still $1.7 trillion um, and and the like turning over in the reverse repo facility while we've embarked on a rate hiking Cycle and we're supposed to be embarking on a balance sheet reduction cycle, Michael.
2: Well, yeah, actually, as a as a heads up, the latest figure is over is over two trillion now. So you've got you've got a serious amount. Uh, you know, as of uh, middle uh, Wednesday of this week, uh, that's the latest data. So reverse repos have gone up. Now, reverse repos are actually taking liquidity out of the system, and the way that the reverse repo tranche has been explained. Is it's a way of the Federal Reserve controlling rates at the front end of the curve. Uh, that's that's you know, pl- very plausible. But the fact is that reverse repos take liquidity out of the system. And if you, or the effective amount of liquidity, so for every dollar of balance sheet increase, uh, raising the reverse repo ceiling or the amount of reverse repos is extracting liquidity and reducing the effective bang for the buck in balance sheet increase. Now, what I would suspect you're going to see is maybe some changes in the in the balance. But you've got to remember that in many ways, the reverse repo facility is also a substitute for bill issuance. So, you know, that's another way of actually thinking about this. So you've got to think of the monetary authority en masse, including the Treasury and the Fed together. But, you know, basically what we're doing is looking through, if you like, the uh, the wood, examining the trees... And trying to trying to come up with a view as to say how much liquidity uh, is overall the uh, the U.S. monetary authorities, Fed and Treasury,
1: putting into the system. Perfect, perfect. All right, I think we've gotten to all of the questions that I see. Um, the equity markets went out on the highs as we started our conversation. Bonds out on the lows of the move. I mean, for the rest of the year, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about the playbook that you're guiding your clients toward, if that's fair to ask? Just broadly speaking, yep. you know, maybe saying you know, whether you're telling them to be in specific sectors, to be in bonds, to be where's the right place to be for the next nine months or so? Well,
2: I figure my, my playbook is saying that uh, you're, you're likely to see uh, US 10 year testing two and a half. Uh, next stopping point is probably one and a half. Wow. So I think you're going to get that seesaw pattern in yields. I think that um, you're going to get downward pressure, uh, albeit temporary. I'm, I'm I'm in your camp about the long-term commodity bull market. But I think you're going to get some downward pressure as the economy eases in the second half of the year. And I think today's number on housing starts is a great heads up to that, uh, that weakness upcoming. Um, I think in terms of the dollar for the moment, I think the dollar's firm because I think there's really no alternative. But one of the things from experience is that after these big geopolitical events, these negative geopolitical events, the dollar tends to peak because everyone rushes into the dollar on the bad news and then they start to come out when things uh, you know ease off. Right. So for the moment the dollar's firm, but you know don't uh, you know don't rule out some future weakness. And in terms of um, of equity market sectors, uh, you know I think that uh, or in terms of let's say equity and bond strategy, For equities, I would start to be looking. Oh, but for now, be in defensive sectors. So you want things like utilities, brands, things that can you know will benefit in this type of environment. And cyclicals, I think at the moment are dangerous. Now, within that picture, things like gold mines may be actually quite an interesting uh, you know long-term investment. Um, Even though I would say that the gold price, I don't think is going to do an awful lot in the short term. I think people will start to factor in some long-term potential for that on the basis that a slowing economy will bring the Fed back in. And then within fixed income, I'd be thinking of a barbell. You want the front end of the curve, and then you want some of the back end on the idea that you're going to get uh, effectively, you're going to get uh, the long end coming down. And if you're brave, you'd buy a five-year bullet, um, because that may, uh, that may start to rally hard if people are expecting Uh, the Fed to
1: uh, ease off at some stage, ease off the tightening. Brilliant. Brilliant playbook, Michael. Um, brilliant. Uh, so much wisdom that you brought to the conversation and this rundown today. Um, I'm going to be hosting a lot more uh, Real Vision daily briefings, and I look forward to our second round um, just to, to, to use this as a launching point because there was so much that I took away from the conversation um, that really leveled my views. And I'm looking forward to see how all this pans out. Can you tell our audience where they can find you, Michael, please, and how we can access your firm and all of your information? Sure. Okay.
2: Look at it on the website crossbordercapital.com, or we've got a research portal called liquidity.com. Those are two avenues into looking at our work. Uh, We produce research uh, on uh, on financial markets, and we also have a money management division which uh, concentrates largely in fixed income management.
1: Brilliant. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I thought that was a great market wrap and a great rundown of the situation. Um, That was Michael Howell of Cross Border Capital. I'm Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. I hope everyone has a nice weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this,